Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Editorials, brought Ooh. to you by Cup of Hemlock Theater. We've done a few of these already. Yep. This isn't new and exciting mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. But today, I think, will be a slightly different editorial than the ones we've done so far, <laughs> but probably not too different from yep. other ones we might do on the horizon. Yes. Because we're going in with very little planned, let's just say. Mm. Sort of the beauty of the editorial format, even though a lot of the ones we've done so far have been things that we've thought a lot about and maybe even brought like an expert witness on. This is one that is just an idea that you had for something that's been on yes. your mind in the theater mm -hmm. world. And we have this format where we can just right. do an episode talking about it. So mm -hmm. I will be your host, interlocutor. <laughs> Ryan Barakovich, co-artistic yeah. producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre, and I'm joined by my co-artistic producer, co-host, interlocutor, Mackenzie Horner. Hello. hello, hello, sir. Good evening, good evening. How are you today, this fine day? <laughs> yes, I'm doing all right on this fine day. Yes. Um, so, okay, yes. so this is an editorial that I guess we can say short version is on long-running theatre shows and Correct. deconstructing the idea of longevity when it comes mm -hmm. to theatre. This was your idea. It's something that's been on yes. your mind. For those yes. watching this on YouTube, you can see that Wicked is hovering above your shoulders. That's right. So clearly, it's defying that's... gravity behind me. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so, so nobody in all of Oz, no wizard that there is or was, is ever going to bring it down. So, ah. yeah. <laughs> so, so why don't you get before you get us started though? What's in your cup? You got to do well, that, even though it's a know, casual, freeform one. <laughs> I always love my good crystal light or a grapefruit tangerine flavors of things. And of course I have it in my new, very fancy Stratford tankard that has the Richard II quote on it because that is my new favorite thing to drink out of. So there we yes. go. Love that. And How about you? As for me, I just have a nice cup of coffee in my The mm -hmm. Cup Cup. Classic. That's, right. That's the show you're watching. It right is now. a classic. It is a classic. <laughs> nice. Yes. Okay, so we're off to a great start in this yes. freeform editorial format. But Mac, mm -hmm. this was an idea you had. I uh, did. You, you wanted to talk about this idea of longevity yes. in theater. So why don't you just make an introductory statement and then sure. we'll just go back and forth and sure. casually talk about it over a drink. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Ryan, you know, I mean, the joy of, of the editorial system was that we said was anytime we have an idea of a, or a concept of, of a topic that is in the theater world that, you know, could spark a discussion, let's sit down and just do a video. Mm -hmm. on it and so we've done theater etiquette we did diana versus uh evita or sorry evita versus diana that's the way we the names either, start going back I, and forth either or it's yeah, fine exactly so we've done that one i forget i feel there's a there was the one i did with max ackerman about yes. Jew, jewish representation yes. which yes. is which was terrific mm -hmm. as well and so this one kind of came up because you know ryan i know you were not the most biggest musical aficionado not in the world. yes, I'm glad you phrased it that yeah. way because yeah. I am a fan of musicals, yes, but not an expert. I, Correct. I pride myself on being an expert of many yes. different types of theater, but musical sadly yeah. is not one of them as much as I do yeah. enjoy it. But yes. often you phrase it in a way that like Ryan, you hate musicals, and I'm like, no, I don't. I swear. <laughs> yeah. He swears. He swears. He does enjoy them, except for Sweeney Todd. No, I. I enjoy Sweeney Todd just fine. I just think it's a worse version of Jekyll and Hyde, is what I will say. Cast Get at me. Right. That's, again, you overstate the extent to which I dislike <laughs> certain musicals, musicals writ large. I yeah. like musicals. I like most musicals, but Except I for can't. Sondheim. Well, I like Sondheim fine, <laughs> but I just, I lack the musical aptitude to mm -hmm. understand what everyone loves about him so much, I True. guess is my thing. True. Anywho, yes. 
But we're not talking about Sondheim. We have, we have a whole Sondheim roundtable you can go and explore. Ooh, yeah, it's, up there. <laughs> it's up there somewhere. But no, what, what came of this was, Ryan, you and I have talked in the past about, you know, the longevity of shows where, you know, we have some shows that run like Wicked and Les Mis. Well, I mean, Les Mis is going to be 40 years old in the West End in 2025. Cameron McIntosh mm-hmm. just announced they're doing a big arena concert tour that will go all over the globally, all over the world before ultimately ending up back at the in London to do the big 40th anniversary concert that they're going to be doing. So, you know, it's going to be one of those things where... And then Wicked is doing a big celebration for its 20th anniversary. Phantom is still running uh, in the West End. It just closed on Broadway after 35 years. But then there are other shows that, you know, they'll run like 800 performances or whatever. I mean, or not even that. I mean, you know, Parade, a show that just won Best Revival at the Tony Awards, literally closed at, at, the, end of, at the end of August, even though it was selling great. The producers just decided to go, Yik. nope, we're done. That's all we have. We're, you know. And, and, and let it be and didn't let the show ride longer, even though I'm sure it could have run if you just, you know, swapped out Ben Platt and put another good actor in the lead role of Leo Frank. Same thing, same thing they're, they're going to do with Josh Groban when he leaves Sweeney Todd. Come January, they've already, there's rumors it could be Mr. Aaron Tavet hmm. coming in to take over the role. So that's very exciting. So once again, like some shows get the chance to run long, others don't. And it's kind of the thing of some people complain about some of these shows that run so long that they kind of just become stapled there on broadway and don't quite add anything new they're just kind of always in place stuck there and you know patty lapone very notably said when phantom closed, she goes thank god it's about time that show closed <laughs> you know because she kind of said like it, it, it run its course long before the 35 year mark she probably should have closed much like a, like a while before that um so you know there are people out there who go we don't need shows running this long they take up precious real estate that, you know, there's already so little real estate in these bigger houses, you know, um, kind of like you're you, like, like, yes, you're selling. But at the same time, there are new shows that are trying to get their foot in the door to get new voices heard. But at the same but they're but producers won't give the, the space up because they are have now paid back the backers and they are making their money hand over fist with each other non-stop so i you know it's kind of this ongoing debate i've heard many theater people talk about of should there be life limits on shows should there be a natural time when we say hey you've run 10 years thanks so much for your time you know it's time to shut the door and bring it back in a few years as a revival but let's let's let it lie and we'll come back again soon so but there's like people go no let it run let it run man like if it's selling and making money and giving people permanent jobs then why should we stop the system for the sake of you know opening like opening another show it's probably not going to run as long anyway so you know i don't know there's a lot of thoughts there with this topic i mean it, it brings up a lot of conversations and you know it's something else that we talked about before the downbeat because i have my new co-host the wonderful scott hurst and he talks about how you know the the need for new voices in broadway in the last few years has really upticked and there are new voices coming through but getting a show made on Broadway is very hard. And part of the process is getting into a venue and that type of thing there. So there's a lot of topics there. I don't know, Ryan, mm-hmm. where do you stand on long running shows? It's well, funny when what's you, what's your concept or, or viewpoints of them? So it's funny when you first pitched this to me just the other night yeah. about like, this is something we could do an episode on. Yeah. My first thought was, I don't think I have any opinion about this whatsoever, but that's not, 
that's as I thought about it for a bit. I guess like I can have opinions, but it's definitely not something I've devoted a lot of thought to. I definitely yeah. don't have any kind of like inside baseball knowledge about the economics mm-hmm. of these shows or yeah. what, you know, profit motives or otherwise yeah. incentives kind of gets them going. But it's funny, the first thought mm-hmm. that I had when you proposed this mm-hmm. is that I just read something about this. Huh? And well, it's funny, it's something that I had read before, but mm-hmm. it's so it's from Sarah Rule's. A book of essays or micro essays, 100 mm. essays I don't have time to write, which I've recently reread in preparation for Necessary Angel is doing her new play Letters from Max at the Theater yes. Center. It's forthcoming at the time when we're recording this, depending on when we release this, it might be a distant memory, or mm. depending on when you're watching this, maybe it's a distant memory. But so I, you know, I've had Sarah rule on the brain. I've, I love that mm. little book of essays. So I just kind of made a point of picking it mm-hmm. up in anticipation of this new show and rereading it. And she has an essay, a micro essay about this one. She did mm. not have time to write fully as is the point sure. of the volume. And so I pull it up here. Sorry, I have it on my screen. So this is if anyone's following along with the book yeah. at home. It's essay number 55, Hungry Ghosts, Gardens and Doing Plays in New York. And I'm just going to read a small little quote from it here, if you'll indulge me, Mac. Please, Ryan. Quote, if a play were to run forever, could it properly be called theater anymore? Instead, it would be an ossified, strange thing, dangling halfway between live theater, a parade, and an amusement park ride. Think of the longest running plays. What happens to them? What do they become? Restaurants and plays should not be open for longer than the half-life of a chef. I mistrust restaurants that have been open for 50 years and plays that have been running for 15 years. Can food stay alive that long? Both restaurants and theaters must offer up living food, end quote. Oh, that gave me a lot to think about because something Mm -hmm. we talked about, Ryan, before the cameras rolled was the longest running show in the West End it's actually not Les Miserables, mm-hmm. even though it is number two on the list. Number one mm-hmm. is The Mousetrap, which opened on the 25th of November, 1952, mm-hmm. and now has run 28,735 performances. That, that is a lot. My mother saw that in the West End back in the 90s when she was there. And by then it was or already 80, old. It was already old news by then. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> So, so yeah, yeah, sorry, go on. Did, did that quote spark any yeah, thoughts? Yeah, it did, it you? did. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, the whole thing with the show is when does, you know, what, what what's the one about, is it Prometheus' ship or Archimedes' ship, where it's like, you take uh, it all Theseus. apart. Ship of Theseus. The ship of Theseus, where it's like, you know, after the original cast leaves, and they were the ones that, you know, brainchilded this piece with the creative team and really kind of gave the show life. And now you're kind of keeping the fro- production frozen, telling the new actors, okay, so, you know, when Patti LuPone played Fontaine during this moment in Like I Dream Dream, she looked to the stage left and lowered her head and put her head in her hand. Now the actors are just being told, blocking-wise, you have on this line, look left, look down. And Patti mm-hmm. LuPone talks about this in her book where she was asked to come to Broadway and originate the role of Fontaine on Broadway because she had won the Olivier the first American to win Olivier and the West End for Fontaine. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, of course you're going to come to Broadway and do this. She said, no, I don't want to. Because my experience of doing this in the West End with this cast was so special. I don't want to do it again. And she went back and she went one night and sat in the back of the theater 
and watched the raw reproduction after it opened. And she said, thank God I didn't, because, you know, it was literally a carbon copy, Randy Graff, who had taken over the role on Broadway, and originally the role on Broadway, was literally doing the same movements. Like, they literally just told Randy Graff, okay, go here, do this, and that. She goes, you lose the organic discovery as an actor of how, of how things are supposed to be. You know, like, I've seen Wicked four times on stage, because, you know, I've had friends who always come and always go, I got the ticket to Wicked, let's go, Mac. That type of thing there, you know. The the walking is very similar. Like, yes, the actors can add different line inflections and different readings of a line, but it takes a really special actor to discover something new in the role that is unique and kind of there to explore and excavate into it. I think that's why people like certain writers, like Sondheim, you know, speaking of Sondheim, his writing is so rich like we talked about it in our Sweeney Todd episode the choices those actors have to make as the characters are so unique to how that actor views the character like Mrs. Lovett for example she either like like how far in advance is that woman planning her ultimate cannibalism incorporated program like does she already have the idea in mind when she hands Sweeney Todd the razor first time he walks into his barber shop, or is it only after he's murdered Pirelli and she sees the body in the trunk and kind of goes, "Huh, hmm. there's an opportunity here that little, I never saw priest. before. <laughs> it could be a little priest, right?" And then it's like, where is she making these decisions? Same thing with Sweeney. Like the wheels are turning all the time, and there are choices you have to make. Of, for example, when does Sweeney Todd choose to kill Pirelli? <laughs> well, at what point in that conversation in, in that in their parlor scene, when you know when, when like is it after Pirelli reveals his name as you know I was the the shop boy who, who uh, swept up hair in the in the barber shop, or is it only when he says I'm going to blackmail you and go after and go talk to my pal Beetle Bamford? Is yeah. that when Sweeney really gets goes okay he's got to go? Like when is that moment? So... And I think there are certain writing choices, certain pieces allow the actors to have more chances to breathe life and give new line readings. And there are some shows like The Wicked's, like The Lame Mrs. that are more frozen and hold and don't quite let the actors play too much. Like I've seen the song popular done four times. Every time Glinda dances on the same spot across the room because that's how Christian Chenoweth did it back when Christian Chenoweth said, I believe Glinda was a horrible ballerina dancer as a child. And this is her trying to be balletic and fairy-like. And whimsical, and this is how she does what she's horrible at it. The actors now do it because it's a funny gimmick of watching, mm. you know, a bat an actor kind of do bad pirouettes across the stage as they sing la la la. You know, so it's like, are the actors doing it organically? Like they come up with their own character motivation, or is it the resident director has said, Okay, all right, Jill, this is your moment. Dance this way, and you gotta go th- from here to here, and this is what you gotta do. So I don't know. Like I think that essayist was right about, you know. At some point, the show does lose its original juice and it becomes more just, we're bringing in new people, yes, but are they actually getting the chance to be organic and discover things for themselves? Or is it, you got two weeks to learn the whole show, we're going to give you the blueprint and you kind of just got to follow along with what's already been preset for you. I don't know. Ryan, what do you so- think? I have a lot of, I guess, just thoughts over the course of you <laughs> kind of unpacking all of that. Yes. Who knew I would have opinions about this? I certainly I do. Know. But I guess before I get into any opinions, can I ask you a question? Because sure. I think you've raised something interesting here. Mm-hmm. 
is the problem that the shows are themselves running long, or is it a problem that they are being, as Sarah Rule said, ossified, and that it's the same identical performance each time? Like, I guess to phrase this a different way, if the actors were given freedom to Mm -hmm. develop or if every few months they kind of get back into rehearsal and Mm -hmm. say like, are we still feeling this? Does this see the same, but otherwise keep the show running. Yeah. Does it, is the problem actually that the mousetrap has been on stage for over 50 years, or is it just a problem if it's the exact same production that you would have seen 50 years ago that your mom saw in the nineties that we can go see today? Mm -hmm. Cause I feel like we're framing this as if it's a problem with, longevity itself but i think it's just a more of a problem about stifling creativity yes yes i think that's it because you know like once you freeze a show because what they learned because i mean if you go back musical theater history wise for example when oklahoma came out your favorite musical ryan i know i have thoughts about it (laughs) but you know when that show started touring it wasn't the original Broadway production that went out on tour. Like basically Roger and Hammerstein licensed it out and other people in other states started doing it. And, you know, and then those tours went off on their own around their states. Because this was like in the 40s. You know, so the whole idea of, you know, loading up big trucks and moving the sets across the country was not a thing. It was, you know, okay, so we got a production running in, you know, I don't know, uh, Pennsylvania. Or, and, and, you know, we got another show running out in California. Well, you know, that show in California is made tour across regionally across other theaters in California, while the Pennsylvania one may do like three or four in a circuit and be done. And those shows had nothing that looked alike. Like the story was the same, but the direction was new. And so I think you're right. Like, like obviously there's a resident director on these Frozen productions who their, their sole job is to maintain that original show because that's the show that came out it won the awards it's the show that people saw and liked and so it's like okay we want to keep that alive because that's what people are that's what people have shown that's what they want people want to go see wicked because you know you get the the big defined gravity moment at the end of act one where the cherry picker takes Mm -hmm. alphabet up into the rafters or you know galinda comes down on that you know metallic bubble in the opening of the show. I mean, now we're starting to see non-replica productions crop up in South America, in Europe, and they look great. Mm-hmm. They look really cool. And I'm excited to see them. I mean, I wish I could see them because of that opportunity there. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. When you freeze a production, you run the risk of literally freezing the creativity and not letting the actors and the uh, have the chance because it, it, it walks that dangerous line of, once again, Prometheus or Prometheus, right? No. Theseus. The ship Theseus, Theseus. Thank you. Theseus' yeah. ship, where it's like, yes, Joe Man, Joe Manganello directed the original Broadway production of Wicked. Now, now he doesn't have time to be coming back like every few months to sit down with the actors again and go, all right, let's re-block this, let's relook at this. You know, like, like it's kind of like you've got so many variables you can play in the scene. Like line inflections can change a bit depending on what the resident director says. But like even like Wicked has musical riffs. They have four musical riffs the alphabets can do for or for or for riff variations for like Wizard and I, Define Gravity, No Good Deed, all have riff variations that are optional that mm-hmm. the actress can choose to perform as. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I would think every actor who comes into the role helpless should have the chance to riff in their own way, as long as it doesn't, you know, overtake the song and it's like riffing on every note, you know, like, but the fact that there's only four riff options and there's been how many alphabets now in 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I'm sure there are alphabets who wanted to try and put their own spin on things, but couldn't because it was like, ah, you got four choices, stick to the four or else, you know, you got to write up from the, from, 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 from the music director saying, well, like, Jill, what were you doing? That's not what we discussed, that type of thing there. So I don't know, Ryan, what and do I, you think? I guess something that I would add to that is, because mm-hmm. you're right, like, you know, this show that's, you know, was conceived and directed so mm-hmm. long ago, you're right, the director can't just keep coming back and, yeah. you know, reworking. But similar to how the cast is, it's mm-hmm. not the same cast, we've cycled through how many different iterations of the cast. I guess my question is, and I don't know if there's a good answer to this, but like, why can't we do the same with directors? It, like, and I get that because, you know, the director is a type of auteur, authorial figure. So as soon as you have a new director, it be- kind of becomes a new production. Yep, which would happen with Kimber McIntosh for the 25th well, anniversary. Yeah. He said, shows don't run 25 years without a revival somewhere. So mm-hmm. that was his excuse to, you know, celebrate the 25th anniversary by hiring a new director to direct a whole new production, which ultimately went on tour, was popular, and then ultimately he swapped out the old original West End, uh, OG West End version for this new version. Now, mind you, there's some other political things that went on there. For example, like he was still paying the RSC money for the original production because it was conceived by them. Mm -hmm. He obviously did not want to do that anymore. So he said, all right, let's shuffle that original production. But to be fair, that was at 30 years old. That's like the Taylor's version of Les Mis, I guess, basically, yep. or Cameron's version. Like, like yeah, Taylor well, Swift has like, to redo all of her songs to, to start, like, that kind of copyright issue. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so he's basically put in the new version. But like he said, like, after, like, usually a show, if it, like, if it's 25 years old, it's had at least one revival and there's a new view of it. There's a new thing of it. Like, it's not the same turntable every year, you know, so... So, so you're right. Like, I, I, at some point, you're right. Like, you can't bring in new directors. And I think I'd be very in- interested to see if Wicked will ever do that. Or because I know because Kim Rackdash did that also did that with Phantom of the Opera at 25 years. He brought in a director and they reconceived the show. I didn't like that redirection as much. Well, there you go. I think you're making a yeah. an argument for why they're hesitant about doing this because yes. the diehard fans don't like yeah. it. And that yeah. you've and I think this brings me back to something I was going to say in response to that Sarah Rule quote that I just did there, is to be a bit of a devil's advocate for a moment, this isn't necessarily my opinion, but I think it's something worth thinking about. Yep. I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase this, but Mm -hmm. there's a bit of a dismissiveness in that Mm -hmm. quote towards things, let me just get the one up again, becomes ossified you know, dangling halfway between live theater, a parade, and an amusement park ride. And I guess I'll just say, for the sake of argument, why are we so precious about theater, the mm. live theatrical art form? Is it necessarily such a bad thing if we go to a play like Wicked the same way we go to a parade or go to an amusement park? Mm-hmm. That we just, you know, this is a good time. It's a commercial product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have certain expectations about mm-hmm. it. Like when you go to, I don't know, Disneyland, 
and you remember doing Space Mountain as a kid and you want to yeah. go back and do Space Mountain again, there's nothing wrong with having an expectation of no. this ride being a certain way. And I think these, you know, she, again, she says it dismissively in this quote, but I do think that there's, you know, I think that's maybe the point of these long running things is that, you know, you saw this show a long time ago, mm -hmm. you can come back anytime. And even if yeah. the cast has changed, certain like parts have changed, it's still going to be the same show you remember, mm -hmm. the same show you enjoyed. You can tell your friend to see it. I think just like a, a silly example is the, I, I've seen Hamilton, the Mervish production twice now, yeah. once before the pandemic and once post pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the di I, I guess this is kind of going to be a shitty thing to say, <laughs> I guess, about a specific artist who I won't name, but mm -hmm. I was very unenamored with one actor in particular who I won't single out when I saw Lafayette. the first time. I, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say, I don't, I don't, the point of this isn't to shit on an individual yes. performer. True. I'm just going to say that there was one person in particular who I did not care for in the, when I saw it in like February of 2020. Right. So when it came back and I did want to see it again, Jill had seen it separate from me. We weren't together yet at the time and mm -hmm. she had seen an understudy playing that role in her night. And she oh, said that understudy was amazing. Mm -hmm. The best understudy she's ever seen. And I was like, wow, mm -hmm. I wish I saw that understudy because when I saw such and such character, right. I was not impressed. So, mm -hmm. so now when it came back post COVID, I really wanted to see Hamilton again so I could get a better experience of that. Mm -hmm. And I bring this up because if I had mm -hmm. pretend it's reversed the situation, that if I had this really great experience the first time and then a different actor is in the role the second time around and then I have a much worse experience, I will probably be disappointed that second time around. I'm in the fortunate position where it was reversed, where I got to have the better experience the second time, but it also motivated me to see a show that I might have not otherwise seen twice just because I wanted to have that better experience. Right. So I think there is value in when you have a good thing, hang on to it. Because, you know, they're rare, first of all, yeah. to get. And there is something nice about, you know, I if the actor who Jill saw that first time was always playing the role, she would tell all of her friends and be like, come see, make sure you see it because you've got to see this actor. Right. You know, like, I feel like this isn't the most, like, cogent point how I'm sort of presenting this here. No, but I, no, no, no. But actually, you bring up an interesting point of multi-generational appeal mm -hmm. like there's one actress who played i think it was alphaba because obviously they're getting all the alphabas and all the glindas together and doing these roundtable discussions and interviews and she says like when she played the role at the stage door when a mother came up to her and said i saw the original production with my mom in 2003 when the show opened this was now you know 2015 2019 and she was now here with her young daughter who was like five six years old you know, and so she goes, it's so great that these stories and these shows keep having the, like, some shows have that ability. I mean, you know, Cameron McIntosh was, was asked, why does Les Mis have, you know, such a hold on audiences after 40 years? And he said, it's because it's the human story and people want to share that story. Like, like, like when we were in the West End, seeing it with my family i had my grandfather my parents my sisters and i that's three generations of people all sharing in that experience and we all had that experience together 
I know I will take my children to go see Les Mis one day. Unless that it's is a foregone conclusion. Never. Never. Okay. They, they Never. said the same about Phantom. Just Listen, saying. I think Les Mis will end up being like a mousetrap because it's one of those shows that just keep coming mm-hmm. again and again and again and again. And also Cameron McIntosh owns the theater. So, you know, he has that extra ability where he doesn't have to worry about paying the landlord. He is the landlord. He is the master of the house. So it's really up to him when he wants to, you know, let a show go. Which I think is also an unspoken thing about this longevity as well as a lot of these long running shows are have the ability to be in a theater house that has the producer owning the theater being the landlord. So you don't have to worry about that. But that's besides the point. But yeah, no, like I think multi-generational appeal for some of these shows is the power of this piece and why it runs. Mamma Mia ran for, hold on, I can tell you I have it in here in my notes. Mamma Mia is the, um, hold on, it is now, as of today, the ninth longest running Broadway show. Mm-hmm. It is the longest running jukebox musical. It opened in, it opened in October 2001 and closed in September 2015. So over 10 years it ran. And ABBA has many generations that it, that it appeals to. You know, so it's one of those things where, you know, if the story's good and if, if the story is good and it speaks to multiple generations and it's a story that's worth revisiting over and over again, I think you're right, Ryan. What's wrong with it becoming a bit more like a parade, you know, uh, uh, a bookmark piece where it's like, hey, you know, I saw Wicked when I was this old. Now, my my child, I'm going to take you to experience this show at this age, you know. So in that where it's like where it's like a rite of passage, where it's like, hey, we're passing the story along, just like Princess Bride. Like they talk about it in the movie where it's like, you know, my grandfather gave me this book and read to me when I was sick. I read it to your dad when he was sick. And now I'm going to read it to you. You know, God bless Peter. Paul. But it's like, you know, stories get passed down. And like, why can't theater have that ability too? So now this is the part where I devil's advocate my devil's advocate point. <laughs> because... And and I, I think this will be interesting because there is a Wicked movie coming out fairly soon, yes. I think. I, next I don't know. next follow- year, November. November of next the year, news. part one comes out because the series is split up into two parts. Still don't yeah, okay. Two so there will be two Wicked movies. Uh, yes, um, but I but, guarantee okay. that will generate many more people coming to the theater. I'm sure it will, but I think, you know, the question that you and I have just both asked is why not theater become mm-hmm. this thing that yeah. sort of like at a parade or an amusement park, yeah. right? You keep coming back to is because the thing that makes theater different is that mm-hmm. it's live. There right. is the living component. So yes. you can watch a movie mm-hmm. that you have, you know, I love Princess Bride. You, yep. you brought it up. Yep. That's a movie that I enjoyed watching as a kid. It's a movie I still enjoy watching as an adult. Yep. And if I have kids one day, I would like to show them that movie too. Yes. And I, the movie I show them will be exactly the same because yes. it's a celluloid print. It exists yep. in a permanent fixed state. Yep. The thing that we ostensibly love about theater is that it's alive, that it is a a living organism that is being reenacted on stage over and over again. So what is the purpose of fixing it that way? Mm -hmm. I'd be curious, depending on how successful this movie or pair of movies is, you're you're right, I think it will motivate people to see the stage show again, but I also think it runs the risk of making the stage show redundant. Because if the thing we love about the stage show is that it's the same every time and I can bring my kids 20 years from now and see the same show I saw when I was a kid, that 
you we once we have a serviceable movie that can serve that function, it doesn't make sense to spend Broadway dollars or West End, you know, ticket prices to see kind of functionally the same thing. That well, I mean, Mamma Mia and Les Mis both had film adaptations, and both, both times, the the, the stage shows saw a uptick and I in will attendance say following La- those those releases. And like the Les Mis movie was famously terrible. I've never actually seen the <laughs> Mamma Mia one, so I can't speak to that. But um, you never seen Mamma Mia the movie with Meryl Streep? No, nah, I, I didn't bother. Oh, I, I'm not a big fan of that right. show. So. <laughs> That's a movie night waiting to happen. Jill, get on this. I, I don't even know if she's seen it. <laughs> I'm sure Jill has seen Mamma Mia. It is a mother-daughter movie. <laughs> sure. <laughs> anyway. I am sure she has seen it. But so is it as is it bad? Is it good? Is it does it Mamma make, Mia? Does it make the stage version redundant? Like I'm suggesting that no, it could No, because there's songs that were cut does. from the stage show. Or songs that were cut in the film that were like when it translated from stage to screen, songs were dropped, some character subplots were dropped. So it's not a direct adaptation you know so there's other things there to discover and once again i think with les mis and mamma mia for example it's one of those things of you see the song done on screen but then you get to go see it live and there yeah the one actress who's played fontaine says you know because of the movie with anne hathaway because of the susan boyle britain's got talent star-breaking performance she goes you know now when i do the role like the pressure is on because people know the song. I gotta be better than Susan Boyle. <laughs> yes, you know, like or, you know, it's like I gotta live up to and, and really make sure people feel it's worth it to be there. And I think anytime you go see a live show, you're gonna feel it because there's not like nothing beats seeing it live and mm-hmm. seeing you know somebody belt defying gravity right in front of you. That's one of the most magical experiences in the theater I've had. Is the first time you see Alpha the Fly on stage. You know, it there is something that is pure magic and, and joy of seeing her ascend from the ground, you know, as she does the so if you care to find me, look to the western sky, you know, the lights go and it's like you just feel it. It's the same thing as going to see Phantom. You know, you can go watch the Gerard Butler, Emmy Rosam, Simon Calloway. Film. Yeah, but it's not good. Nobody wants it's, to watch that movie. It's, it's not great. It's not great, but you know, nothing beats <laughs> the first time you sit in the theater and the chandelier drops on you. Yeah, but that I, magic is still there. There is something power magically powerful about that. So I think what you're hitting on isn't necessarily actually the element of liveness. It's the element mm-hmm. of spectacle. True. Is what these big mega musicals yeah. have to offer. It makes me think of Remember that production of Doubt that we reviewed a little yes. while back, the, yes. the Breaking and Entering Theater? Yes. As I indicated in that review, I wasn't too enthused by that production. Mm-hmm. And the takeaway that I had from seeing Doubt performed mm-hmm. live on stage for the first yeah. time since a mm-hmm. very good film adaptation of it was made, right. I kind of felt that the fact that it's live isn't doing anything for me. Mm. It, if that's the only selling point that, you know, I could just watch the movie with a stellar cast, not that the cast wasn't good in the production we saw, but yeah, it's just, you know, the top tier Hollywood actors doing this very well written play in a very well staged and blocked mm-hmm. way that I didn't feel like the fact that I happened to be seeing it live and it happens to be in a church, it wasn't adding anything. I feel like that's a perfect example that 
if you know if it's not giving something that justifies that like rush of theater I think we tend to overstate liveness when maybe yeah. in the case of these musicals, it's the spectacle that is, yeah, I, yeah can't I, be beat. Yeah, I, I think plays are a bit different from musicals in this way, because you're right. Like Usually when a play gets adapted for the screen, it's pretty cut and paste. There's not a ton of variation you can do. Well, and The joy not, of seeing a musical live yeah. is, you know, Cynthia Reba's going to sing Defying Gravity one way. That's going to be incredible. It's like Anne Hathaway sings I Dreamed a Dream one way. You now go see it live on stage and, you know, you go see, I don't know, get, um, an actress, Dina Menzel. She comes back and does the Wicked again. Boom. <laughs> Why not? You heard your first people. But you go see her perform, you know, the show live. And once again, yes, the spectacle of her actually levitating is really cool. But, you know, my dad talks about it when he, when he says, like, you know, it's one thing to see you know, somebody like 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 a Gerard Butler sing Phantom of the Opera on screen. He wasn't horrible. He wasn't great. But he goes, nothing beats being in the theater and hearing Colm Wilkinson sing the Phantom, making the hair on the back of your neck. But you're not going to see Colm Wilkinson if you go see it now. Or if it, no, you will see like, whoever you see. Well, but, like, that, but that's like, if the performer is good. But they if there will was, give you a good experience. But if there was a movie version with mm -hmm. Colm Wilkinson that you could watch now, True. would your dad think that is preferable to seeing Joe Blow do it in the West End? It would depend. My dad is one of those people who goes, it depends on the singer. Because he goes, mm -hmm. if the singer is good, I will enjoy it because they make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Like he didn't know who the two Alpha, uh, Yelpa and Galinda were when we went and saw Wicked the first time. Like it was Shoshana Bean and Megan Hilty. Now Megan Hilty's gone on to do Smash and Shoshana Bean's gone on to do other great Broadway works herself. But he goes, I didn't know who they were. I just knew when they both sang, my hair stood up. It was just that powerful, you know? And that's kind of what he, and that's the same thing when he saw it another time. He went, didn't know who that actress was, didn't care. It was her vocal performance that sold me. Same thing when he took me to see Phantom. He goes, I saw Phantom with Colm Wilkinson. He was great. And then, you know, my dad took me for my birthday one year to see Phantom. And it was the touring production, so it was a bit pared down. It wasn't The spectacle wasn't as big. Mm -hmm. But he goes, yeah, the guy who sang the Phantom was really good and sold the show for me. He was worth the ticket price because he gave that performance what it like what was needed. You know? So it depends. It depends. Like, once again, spectacle will save you when... You know, your singers aren't that great and you need yeah. something else to sell your show. So let's let's talk about the mouse trap, which right. I've never seen live. I've I've read it before, but like I've never seen right. that play performed. But I can't imagine there's a lot of spectacle to justify no. the Yeah. So how do we account for the success of that show? Is it just a heritage piece at this point or what I think it is a bit of a heritage piece where, you know, it's a fun murder mystery. Mm -hmm. It's a fun play. Like I've read it, I read it yeah, years so ago. You know, so it's like one of the, like once again, I've never seen it live. My mom remembers seeing it in the West End and really enjoyed it because it's a well-written Agatha Christie play. So, you know, I think it's one of those things where it's like, I think, yes, you're right. It is a heritage piece where people know it so well now. It's like, oh yeah, the mousetrap. Like, I mean, like, I've been to London twice mm -hmm. now. Both times I, I never saw mousetrap. If I if I were to go to London yeah. a third time, like say next week, I would consider going to see mousetraps because well, I've never seen it. But I, I've I read the it, funny, never seen it. 
And I think the funny thing is, this is maybe the flip side of a lot of what we're talking about, the fact that you know it will reliably be there every time you go back to London puts less pressure on seeing it this time around. Because you're like, well, if I don't see it, like I I should see Back to the Future while it's here because that will maybe disappear after a while. But, you know, don't see Mousetrap, it's fine. I'll Mm -hmm. go come back to London six years from now, it'll still Mm -hmm. be playing. (laughs) And and as a result, you will never see Mousetrap because every time you go, you will constantly think, ah, maybe Mm -hmm. next time there's more prescient things I need to see right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, like, yeah, like, I'm looking at, I I mean, in the the St. Martin's Theater where it does play in the West End, it's a 550-seat theater. So... You know, yeah. it's been there a long time, and I get—I guess it's the right amount of seats that it can sustain. Like that, because I don't know if they're selling out every night. Like, I feel like it has to be selling mm-hmm. decently because, yes. like, I remember something when we—you probably remember this from our a class we took at York with yeah. Peter McKinnon as the professor. Mm-hmm. I forget yeah. which one, if it was stagecraft was like, or theater management, but yeah, theater management. It, I think. But it was yeah. He he said that you know the thing about commercial theater is that yeah. as long as it's making money, the show. Yeah can go on forever yeah and so and the second it stops making money they pull the plug because the point of commercial theater it's not about art art is a byproduct but the point is to you know if you make a good artful show it will sell tickets but the point is as long as the show does sell tickets it doesn't matter what the quality of the show is yeah and the second it's not making money get it out of there get something else that will make money Mm -hmm. and and i think it is a testament to the popularity of these long running shows that they wouldn't last this long if they weren't continuing to be profitable. There is a demand for them. And a lot of that does come from heritage and memories and appreciating, you know, the history of these shows. But a lot of it is that, yes, I would like to see this thing. Tourists want to see it. And I don't know, like, do we be dismissive of the tourist market when it comes to these types of shows or is You know, I, I don't know what are your what's your thoughts on tourism as like the main audience demographic when it comes to these pieces? Yeah, I would absolutely say like you know, and this gets into another big topic with longevities of these shows is you know like Lion King for example. That show is let me look here on the tracker here that Lion King ranks as the third longest running Broadway show. Opened nineteen ninety seven, still running today. It has over 10,000 performances under its belt. Yep. Now, that show, at the time, like, yes, those puppets by Julie Taymor were revolutionary. There, there are still spectacles to look at. Did she make the um, puppets herself? I know she directed She did it, design but... them. She okay. designed them and helped create them because she does have that. That's cool. I just want to make sure we are giving the credit yes. where it's due yes. because puppet designers often don't get credit for the work due. No, Julie Taymor is very actively involved okay. in the puppet making cool. and the decisions of the puppetry. Just check. Yeah, so... But, like, Lion King now, you know, it is a tourist trap. It is, it's not so much a ingenious piece anymore where people are like, oh, my God. Because we've seen other puppets come after this. We've had Avenue Q. There's other shows. You can't really along. compare Avenue Q puppets to Lion King puppets in terms of pure spectacle, I would say. No, but mm-hmm. it's like the thing of, you know, yeah. like other puppet shows have come, puppet-centric shows have come along. Yeah, I know, but Avenue Q is like then, a Jim Henson like parody. Yeah. It's not, it, you, I, I don't know. think it's a fair I comparison. I know. say War Horse as like a fair Fine, comparison. Fine, War Horse, War Horse King. Yeah. War Horse come along. But, you know, Lion King sells because people love the 1994 film and want to come see, I want to be prepared and you know, circle of life performed for them. And so it's that thing there where it's like, you know, but at the same time, Lion King has given many 
actors and stage crews and orchestra members their start in the theater. Same thing with Wicked. Like Megan Hilty, who was, I think, third. She was like, stand by. She she got off the bus and got the understudy role of Glinda when she came to town right after getting into school. And then, you know, she got to go on and do San Francisco and L.A. and tour and everything else. And it gave her a start. I mean, I just listened to a podcast where, you know, this violinist came to Phantom of the Opera on Broadway five years after it opened and stayed with it till it closed 30 years later. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she talks about how, you know, Phantom gave her, it allowed her to put her kids through school, allowed her to buy a nice, decent, like, decent home for herself and her partner. Like, she talked about how, you know, jobs like this in the arts don't aren't abundant. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, a contract that, say, Stratford or Shaw in Canadian theater are, you know, coveted by, by a lot of performers and artists because it's like, I get a contract that says I, I have a permanent paycheck from February to November every year, you know, and I mean, if like, you get brought yes, back every year, which not if you're brought does. back every year, <laughs> but you know, like, like I was talking with Bridget, our friend Bridget, she talks about how, you know, the wig maker there has been there, you know, for over a decade. And they, that is, they, that's what they do year round is make wigs and it's a good steady gig. And, you know, so I think, yeah, like there are tourist trap. Yes. And mouse trap. Is it a tourist trap? Mouse trap 100%. is a tourist trap. <laughs> The tourists are the mice. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But at the same time, how many actors have had the chance to break their legs uh, on the stage? Not literally, but, you know, cut their teeth. Thank you. Cut their teeth on the stage. Or, you know, stage hands. Like, how many of them have started there and then gone on to do other projects after that? Like, some of these long-running shows do have the benefit of opening the door and then allowing people to come in and hone their craft and then move on to something new. Like Annalie Ashford, who is now playing Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd. She started as like, you know, the Galinda understudy, left when it went into Legally Blonde, came back, played Galinda proper, left again, went and did, you know, Kinky Boots, won the Tony Award, and has continued to work ever since. <laughs> like, Wicked gave her start. You know, like that, like, yes, these shows are tourist traps and they keep, you know, <laughs> they, like, uh, they're now surviving off of the tourist pool. Because if you're a tourist and you come to New York or West End, what are you more likely to go see? Are, are you more likely to go see the new unknown play of Kimberly Akimbo? Or are you which like, was more... apparently very good and has it's been very successful? Good. And, yeah, yeah it, it, it won the music, it won the best to- award at the Tonys for best. New like, it, I just feel like you're we're maybe aging this yeah. video a bit because that might become the next Wicked or Lion King, and then it could look it back very on this well and be could. like, well, yeah, well we don't know. I mean, it's you know. it's so <laughs> yeah. early on in its run, but it's the whole thing of you know if tourists from I don't know Japan have a choice, they've come with a tour group to New York. And the tour, and they're saying, what show do you want to go see? Do you want to go see Kimberly Akimbo, a new musical, or would you rather go see Wicked? More likely than not, they're going to choose Wicked mm-hmm. because it's worth the money and it's a proven commodity. So, you know, these things do have a place. They provide longevity of work. Yeah. They give break-ins for the actor, for performers and stage crew. And, you know, at the same time, when a tourist comes to town, maybe the one downside is the tourists, because they have this, the fail-safe option, don't give these other shows that could become longer-running shows the chance. Because if you've only got a choice to spend your money on one ticket, and you choose Wicked over Kimberly Akimbo, and Kimberly Akimbo is 
ble- bleeding seats. And, you know, there are a few, like only a few bad performances away from the producer yanking the, the cord and pulling it out, you know, that can make or break, but it's that choice you have to make. I don't know. Ryan, what do you think? Well, I think, because I agree, this job security element does add yeah. a wrinkle to it because we've been talking yeah. a lot about just the artistic merit of the piece, but these are, this is an industry and people's mm-hmm. livelihoods are on the line. And I do think it is important that these shows do exist that, yeah. you know, allow people to stay employed and cut their teeth mm-hmm. and get into the industry. Although usually you have to already be very successful in the industry to get into yeah. one of these big shows. So it's definitely not an entry level job for most people. That's a bit of a wrinkle to this, but it is good that once you do ascend to that level, you do have steady work and you can, you know, be secure in it. I think I would maybe propose that because we have been talking about the create activity element of it and stifling creativity Mm -hmm. through these shows that are fixed in place and don't get to move i think of you know the character james tyrone in the eugene o'neill play long day's journey into night who is a you know a veteran actor who is based on eugene o'neill's real father james o'neill who you know laments the fact that he did this one romantic drama for such a big part of his career Mm -hmm. it made him you know successful financially and it sold out all over and toured all over but he was at a moment in his career where he could have been something great but then he let himself get locked into this one role that stifled his development and i worry that it's you know everyone's mileage will vary if the you Mm -hmm. know the job security is more important than the you know creative flourishment but right. these people are artists just because they're, mm-hmm. you know, maybe workman artists, a lot of them who, yes, I play the the violin and Phantom and I yep. clock into my job every day. You're still an artist. You are and absolutely you, an artist. And the show can happen without you. Well, of course. And I think I the alternative that I would maybe propose is instead of just a long running show that never changes for decades, maybe we need more established repertory companies with large ensembles and that can employ a lot of people mm-hmm. so they can sort similar to what you're saying with Trafford and Shaw but they keep bringing this I just bang my hand they keep bringing <laughs> the same people back over and over again but the mm-hmm. work is constantly changing you know you yep. have the job security without mm-hmm. needing to just do the same show yep. over and over again and I you know but the, the problem then becomes unless you cultivate the fan base of the people who will go to this yep. theater because it's that theater as Stratford has that type of fan base, yep. Shaw has that type of fan yep. base. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if the company that does Phantom says that you love our company, that's why you'll come back for whatever yep. new show we do next. I think a lot of people would say, no, we love Phantom. So it's hard yeah. to it's hard to cultivate that. But I don't know, there's something to be said about just star power of artists, like from the mind that brought you Phantom of the Opera and yep. the star. And, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber is one of the people who has that kind of star power, although obviously Bad Cinderella put a bit of a stain on his bullet. He's had a few clunkers lately that have kind <laughs> you of know. dampened. But it's Sondheim. Sondheim, you know, like throughout the 70s and 80s when he was big, in, uh, the big writer, it was, hey, there's a new Sondheim show coming. You got to get out and see the new Sondheim show, mm-hmm. you know? You know, that's how Miss Saigon was sold. It was from the creators of Les Mis comes their next big mega hit, Miss Saigon. You know, yeah. come see the helicopter. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to come yeah. to any conclusions about this. No, I think, do you... yeah, I think once again, there's pros and cons to this. Like, yeah. I, I think there is a place for these longer running shows. I mean, because they do open up the doors. And I think once again, the creative teams behind them just need to maybe be a bit more 
flexible and open. I mean, the fact that it took almost 20 years for the first Black Glinda to be on Broadway is a bit of a... <laughs> took also, a little could, long there. Yeah, I, I would say so, yes. Yeah, so it took a little <laughs> long time there. But once again, the creative team was like, we don't want... Their, apparently, their thought process, they said, was, you know, Glinda can be seen as like the mean, bitchy, mean girl. We don't want to put a Black actor in that position if I to play that role. But the actress is like, no, I'll play that role. It's fun. Yeah. Like, and she also goes on a great character journey mm-hmm. throughout the piece. You know, I mean, Les Mis is very well known for BIPOC casting in their shows. Most Eponines now are BIPOC. Like, mm-hmm. like, 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 like very rarely do, do you see a white Eponine anymore in the West End. It is usually a BIPOC, Eponine, which is great. Yeah. Same thing with Fontaine. Like, they are really good at diversifying their cast. And I think that's their thing there, too, is just the creative team has to be active in the show as well. Like, you know, Joe Manganiello should come see Wicked once a year just to see the cast and go, hey, maybe, you know, what that Jill person did, maybe we should, you know, keep that because that's a unique interpretation that we can use and build on. Or, you know, have like maybe one rehearsal a year with with like the director and go, all right, everybody, let's just sit down and have a have like a team group chat and just kind of, if you've got questions about why am I looking, you know, at, you know, like, Fontaine, like in, in like I Dream to Dream, why is it every time I get to this line, I, I'm told I have to look stage left and put my head in my hand? What was the reasoning behind that move? Why? Like, you know, talk it through, let them discover, like have a day of just workshopping the piece again. You know, do that at least once a year just to really give the chance for, for, for the cast to get to have some time to really creatively fill the show again. Versus just letting them be stagnant because, you know, there there is a purpose to these. They make money for the producers. They provide longevity. They provide secure business for the, for the performers and the artists behind the stage. But they also, you know, sometimes can grow stale and be a bit flat. If, 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 if the actors are just being told, move here, move there, do this, do that, without giving any type of real creative direction. So, you know, I don't know, Ryan, what are your final thoughts? I- yeah, like like I said, I went into this not thinking I had much to say, and I don't know how long have we been talking about it now. So clearly, for a good bit. yeah. So it's so clearly we there's more to this topic. I don't think we've exhausted it. I yeah. don't think we will exhaust it. Neither of us are in yeah. any kind of positions of power to be like, mm-hmm. yes, this is what we would change if we, you know, mm-hmm. had were given the reins to lay Miz. I think you've made some good suggestions. I encourage. You know, people get in the comments section if you have thoughts or if you have experience mm-hmm. with these kinds of shows, either as a spectator or a worker or a producer of some kind. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have, you know, maybe, maybe there's something we haven't considered that I would encourage people to put forward because, you know, we have a limited perspective on this. But even with that, we found a lot to say about it. So yeah. thank you for bringing this topic uh, up. And yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to see what the future of these long running shows yeah. continues to look like. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, like we'll have to come back and revisit it and see if, like, you know, Kimberly Akimbo has joined the ranks <laughs> of long running shows. You never know. Yep. Some shows just have that unique gift where they just click with the audience at the right time and, you know, the rest is history. So mm-hmm. we will see. Well, there we go, Ryan. My cup half runneth dry, as they say. <laughs> but we will let everybody go for now. Let you, like, let's know your thoughts. What do you think the pros and cons are of these long running shows? Are they worth it? Or should we be making room for new voices and new shows? more like should there be a actual time limit of hey you've run 15 years you've run 10 years time to move on let's like let's get something new in that space 
So you let us know your thoughts. We want to hear from you. Comment below. But there we go, Ryan. Where can people find and follow you? You no need to follow me personally, but if you like me, just follow Cup of Hemlock Theater. It's at COH Theater on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or Cup of Hemlock Theater on YouTube where you might be watching this. And Cup of Hemlock Theater podcast and all the podcast places. Like, share, subscribe, do all that stuff. How about you? Where can people find and follow you? Well, find follow me at Mackenzie Horner on all social media platforms. You can follow my musical antics over at Before the Downbeat. We've talked about several of these musicals. Wicked was our season three opener. So you can check that one out. Phantom of the Opera was our 50th episode. <laughs> Lion King will be coming up in, uh, in, a, in a future season. It will be a, it will be a, a landmark episode when, it, when we do get to that one. What are the ones that we talked about? We haven't done Les Mis yet because that's going to be 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 100th anniversary. You've been doing yeah. the show for 100 years. Exactly. I look good for that. You know, I, yeah. I, 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 I keep my skin looking good. You, you have um, aged a bit. <laughs> so we have that one. We have that one. I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't know. Just, go, through, go through the yeah, list. Yeah, have people check out the catalog. You don't have to do all the yeah, work for them. Exactly. Send them to look. Exactly. I mean, like, maybe Ryan will have, at some point, we'll have, maybe we'll have to do, like, a pro shot of Mousetrap. Because I'm if, sure if they've done one. there is one available, I'm down for that. Yeah. There we go. There we go, everybody. All right. Thank you so much. We'll see you in a theater very soon. Cha-ta for now. And we'll see you in the next episode.